this station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The body portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ashu Christie, the Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio show where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Keith Kendricks. Kirk Hastings. And with us once again is local apologist John Comforti. John, welcome back to Evidence for Faith. Thank you, Keith and uh, Kirk. Glad to be here. And we're going to have to get you into the rotation, so we just uh, tell everybody who we're here, and we'll be three hosts instead of uh, hosts and guests. How about that? <laughs> that would be – I would welcome that. That'd be fine. Thank you. <laughs> so um, – The three stooges here, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Who gets to be – who gets to be curly? <laughs> 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 who was it? Larry, Moe, and Curly? Uh, yep. There, Larry Moe and Curly. There you go. That's us. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't have a quote of the day. I don't have uh, – there was a, been a dearth lately of news items. Nothing's really been spiking my interest as far as uh, apologetics news. So, But we do want to remind people that can, they can check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And we've got a Facebook page, so a good place for a discussion, and like us on Facebook. You can find podcasts of the show at iTunes, so there is almost five years' worth of shows there, hundreds of shows to go over. And you can also find us at Double Twist, and do check out Rasio Christie at rasiochristie.org. I don't want to sound agent, but I don't even know what Double Twist is. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, it's like iTunes for the Android market because iTunes is an Apple system. I'm not sure what an Android is either, except one of those guys that used to be on Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's sort of like that, only it's an Android that you carry in your pocket. You can tell what age I am now, can't you? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a form of smartphone, like, a, like an iPhone. Oh, is there such yeah. a thing as a dumb phone? <laughs> yes, there is. Yes. Really? Anything that's not a smartphone is a dumb phone. Okay. <laughs> just, it's I've, had just... lo- I've had lots of those in my time. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, guys, we have a really interesting topic today. We're going to be talking about the claim that God is a moral monster. It's something that we hear about from the Internet. We hear about from books by atheists, and the new atheists really started this aggressive attack. Uh, you silly Christians, you have no idea what you're talking about. Look at your own religion. Can't you tell that God is really evil? You talk about a God of love. But here, we can go to the Old Testament, and we can see that you're wrong. God's not a God of love. He's an evil, mean God. Uh, so people hear that all the time, and that's what we're going to be tackling today. And the moral standard they use to discern that is? <laughs> oh, man, you, you really jumped ahead in that conversation, haven't you? <laughs> that's right, because uh, atheism doesn't claim that there are any morals, right? Unless unless they just claim that you just know them. Well, there's uh, nothing uniform anyway. That. I just read a good book on that subject. It's got and? a moral monster. Oh, you did? Oh, Paul yeah. Copan's book. Yeah, really good. Great. He was a wonderful guest on the show, and we should have him back. Yeah. But today, we have John Comforti talking about, is God a moral monster? So, John, you have a lot to live up to now. You have to live up to Paul Copan. Okay. I haven't written a book on it, but I do know <laughs> something about the subject, I guess. Very good. So, so where do you want to start? Where in, in addressing this, I guess let's take this from the viewpoint of the average listener who has either heard this objection and is wondering about it, 
Um, maybe they're considering Christianity, and so this is one of those things that keeps popping into their head that kind of dissuades them from Christianity. Or maybe they already are a Christian, and they have somebody who has been talking about this, or they've heard it talked about, and they're wondering, wow, just how would I answer this question? It, if you stack all of the complaints one on top of another, they seem pretty convincing. So, so what do we? Or I guess maybe for those, let's let's even go back further and let's address what are the claims? You know, uh, what do the atheists say, guys, about Christianity that is so evil? Um, one, it promotes slavery, right? Right. That it, that even Jesus said, you know, uh, and Paul said, you know, all all slaves should be obedient to their masters, etc. That it, it in, even the New Testament implicitly uh, condones slavery. That is a charge that it, that it, that they will often make. Aids and embeds it, right? Right. Um, and God likes to kill little children. Right, because um, what, the bear attack or something? Well, there's stories in the Old Testament about where he says, uh, you know, wipe out all the opposing armies, including the women, children, animals, and everything else. Right. And you got Noah's flood, killed a bunch of ki- kids. Right, mm-hmm. killed everybody except eight people. <laughs> Right. And there is a psalm that ends with, I can't remember which one, I think Psalm 92, Psalm 40, talks about, um, happy shall he be that dasheth the little one's heads against the rocks. Yeah, I and hear that one a lot. Isn't, isn't that such a, a wonderful God that would be happy, you know, that, that condones such things? Uh, that, that one's pulled out every once in a while. Boy, we're uh, really digging a hole here. I hope we can get out of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I would just like to say, you know, truthfully, I, looking at it from a, a, a non-believer standpoint, from an outsider's point of view, this this actually is a legitimate question. I mean, you do have to admit that there are certain uh, very violent uh, actions taken in the Old Testament particularly that would have to give you pause to say, no, what, what is going on here? How can you reconcile this with the humble carpenter from Galilee who talked about love and peace and everything in the world? And how do you, you know, reconcile? And, and isn't it just a matter of the Christians sitting there cherry picking what things they like to do? For instance, in the book of Leviticus, they'll say, well, homosexuality is bad because of the book of Leviticus, it says that, you know, a man sleeping with a man is an abomination. But then two or three verses later, it says eating lobster and shrimp is an abomination as well, but we go and eat shrimp salad for lunch. So how can we justify, yeah, you, pick, you know... You pick your abominations, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, but we, so what they, what, from an outsider's point of view, they're saying, well, you just don't like homosexuals, so you say we'll keep that rule, but we like shrimp salad, so we'll, di- we'll just get rid of that rule. And it looks sort of arbitrary. And, right. you, and what you have to really understand is that when, when Christ came, it really cha- it didn't change things as much as it fulfilled things, and it really, uh, was a was a watershed moment with how God was going to deal with mankind, and that is the Christian gospel. That's the good news. That is really why uh, you know Christianity is such a you know such a, a tremendous uh, uh, you know great good news story for the world and for mankind. And that is really what needs to be brought out is that it's you know it, it's God fundamentally shifting his relationship to mankind and but you had you do have to go back to find out okay what was that relationship originally and well, that's I, what the old testament teaches us i think this is where you get this um the kind of nominal christian view that's in some liberal churches that um you know god is basically it's almost like two gods you know uh, the new testament uh is a God of love, and the Old Testament is a God of anger. And so many people kind of reject that. They reject the God of uh, judgment and stuff and say, no, um, you know, that God doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's our New Testament God, the God of love, that actually exists. And that, for outsiders, that can be also very confusing. They they think that, you know, we're just um, rewriting um, our kind of made-up God. I heard a well, funny story recently about a little kid that was in Sunday school and they were talking about the God of the Old Testament and they brought up that subject about how it sounds like there's two different gods. There's one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. And the little boy 
the little boy's solution to that was he says, said, oh, th- the God in the Old Testament, that's before he was a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so God got converted. I like that. That's an idea. There you go. I like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it really, again, it has to do with you have to see the, the, the death of Christ on the cross is that, is that seminal moment in history where everything changed with regard to the relationship between God and man because you have to actually have that Old Testament God of anger and justice before you can have that New Testament God of love and grace because what is he going to forgive you if he never if if you if you never see that separation if you never see that there's something to be angry about then there's nothing to forgive you see what i mean it is one god that is being consistent in the old testament you get to see that there is something to be angry about god has a beef with mankind that god that man in the garden of eden you look all the way back God gave man everything, okay? Gave him the whole world to play around in, gave him, you know, and he only had one rule. The only thing he could not do was rewrite his own rules as to what constituted good and evil. God reserved that right to himself, and mankind wasn't happy with that. So, you know, he wanted to be God. God said, no, that position is taken, okay? You, you, <laughs> you, 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 can't, you can't apply for that job, okay? And mankind was in constant, has, and still is, in constant rebellion against that idea. And what God had said, well, if, you know, and, and we see that in some of these rules. For instance, the, um, the, the rule about stoning your children. We get this one a lot. Why don't you right. stone your children if they're disobedient? Well, the, the, the rabbis have, have a saying about this rule. They say that it never was and it never will be. And what they mean by that is that no one ever brought their child up to be stoned. Right. No one ever did that. Well, unless you're talking about some kids in the 60s. Well, a whole different kind of stoned and a whole different kind, whole different discussion. Okay, (laughs) but uh, but they particularly, um, you know, are trying to say, you know, that. But man, a loving parent wouldn't do this, right? But what God is saying, you know, what if you want to be God, sometimes you have to do this because an all-powerful, all-holy God cannot allow this sin in his presence, even if his child has been guilty of it. And so God is in the position of his children being in rebellion and him having to put that separation there. So, And it's God's and mankind's fundamental problem. How do we heal that separation? And so what God, I think, is trying to teach us is partly in that rule is, are you really prepared, man, as an ordinary man to... To do this kind of thing, or you know, can you, you know you want to play God and you want to have all the prerogatives and everything of being God, but do you really want the responsibilities that go along with it? And so that's part of that teaching, part of that law of that of that the law tell you know, and that's what you know Paul tells us. You know, he says you know the the, the law is to be a teacher for right. us, that, and, and that's a very important point we got to emphasize. Right. That that is that is, he tells Timothy. You know, it's good for teaching. It's good for reproof. It's good. You know, that he lists these things that it's good for, and but he doesn't say that it's good for taking people out and stoning them anymore. Why? Because the 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 rules the 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 rules by which mankind is to be operative under God's. Well, you know, he originally is saying, okay, here's all the rules, guys, and if you're going to play God, this is what you have to do in your society in order. You know, to function, you have to be judgmental. You have to be able to discern these kind of things. Look into people's hearts and see what their motives were. And we've learned through that that we're totally inadequate to that task. Right. You know, and so he's saying, okay, with Christ, he's saying, okay, you hopefully have learned that you can't, I don't care how many rules I give you, you can't do this job. So that's not going to be a way for you to heal this rift between us. So I will come down, give the ultimate sacrifice. And by giving my son, and now look to those rules for guidance and for uh, for for teaching. Now, the the law ends up breaking down into several you know, different parts, and it comes to us as Christians now not to because Christ 
railed against the Pharisees for sitting there and nitpicking at the letters of the law and not understanding its spirit, understanding why it was there. What did he talk about when, he, when, they, when they were talking about the Sabbath? And he said, you fundamentally don't understand that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Try to understand why these rules were made. Right. What is the and, principle behind them? Right. And when you get to that, then you can understand whether or not to implement that rule. Okay. So when we understand, uh, for instance, this rule about stoning children, that it's meant to teach us we can't be God. Okay. Got that lesson. We don't need to do that. Okay. Uh, at, at this point. Yeah, it teaches us that God takes disobedience very seriously. Right, right. But that we are not equipped to do what he can do, you know, in, 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 in executing judgment like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not prepared to, to go out and stone our children. As the rabbi said, no one ever did it. No one ever will. Right. Why? Yeah, it's interesting. Why? Because we're not because we're not God. So you have this very strict law. Uh, but he puts it in the hands of the people that he knows are going to be merciful. And uh, this is a, a good application that we can have for today is we ought to have, as a society, we ought to have strict laws but merciful judges mm-hmm. so that everyone knows what is right and wrong, what is legal, what is illegal, and that and what things are serious. I mean, you know, when you've got, uh, you know, for example, uh, murderers um, getting seven years in prison, um, one gets the idea that murder isn't all that important anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you uh, embezzle from uh, stockholders, you might get seven life sentences. Uh, so, so one learns that it's much worse to be an embezzler than it is to be a murderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's crazy things like that. And and but the law actually teaches us things. So the the law is there to teach us the importance of certain things. And then you have judges who take into consideration all of the circumstances and can decide if mercy is warranted or not. Well, let's uh, remind people, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rosho Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm John Conforti. There we go. And we are talking about, is God a moral monster? So, John, I don't know if you're ready to move to an area. Let's talk about this idea about slavery. You know, uh, doesn't the Old Testament condone slavery? It seems to, even the New Testament seems to condone slavery. So how can God be a good and loving God when we know that slavery is evil and immoral? Well, I think the first thing to understand is that the Bible is written, and this this is a this is a biblical principle going all the way back. I mean, Augustine and everything have always understood the Bible is written to the culture that it was originally intended. Okay, and so it has to be seen as a product of being within that culture. And in ancient times, slavery was just the norm. And what's interesting is as you read, for instance, in Leviticus, where it goes over the rules for slavery in ancient Israel, is that you can actually see God opening up the door and preparing mankind for the exit of slavery as an institution. And it's really a fascinating study, even as far back as the Old Testament, because first off, he says, you know, you will not enslave your own people. You know, Jews were not to enslave other Jews. He said, because you remember what it was like to be a slave in Egypt. And you were not allowed to hold slaves for more than seven years. And when after seven years, regardless of whether they're, they're for instance, uh, if, if it was a judgment against you, you owed someone money, you could be sentenced to be their slave for up to seven years to pay back that amount. Whether that was actually paid back in seven years or not didn't matter. And, whether, and if the year of Jubilee came, say, after three years, then you went free anyway. And when you went free, the, the person who was your master had to give you a week's worth of food, a week's worth of, of water, and a certain amount of money to get you started on a new life. So there were absolute limits to what, you know, to, to the time period. Plus, there were all kinds of rules about how um, they could be treated. You could not, for instance, just because you owned a, a person as a slave, you could not own their children. 
you could not automatically own their wives or, or, or their spouses. Uh, and they had, they also had to have the Sabbath off, which was, you know, a tremendous thing, you know, un- unheard of thing in the ancient world that not only did you, could you not work on this on the Sabbath, but none of your servants or slaves could work on the Sabbath. And so if you had all these, in other words, you had to treat them like people. And God says specifically, why? Because he says, do not think that you own them. They are in my image and I own them. They are mine, not yours. And so, you know, there is this this dichotomy set up between what you can own and what you can't own. And it's clear it, by the rules that God lays out that you cannot own another human being. So the idea of slavery is already being severely compromised by the Old Testament rules that God lays down. Now, how much ancient Israel ever actually obeyed those rules is up is a, a question for debate. But it's clear that you know the Old Testament rules and regulations uh, were very much geared toward getting slavery as an institution out. And as far as uh, Paul and Jesus saying. Um, obey your masters, what they were saying was that, you know, Christianity was not about instituting slave revolt in the Roman Empire. That was a sure way to get everybody killed. And that's what they did not want. That way they said, you know, that you have to accept your position in life and trust in God and have faith that, you know, things will work out the way that they're supposed to. What I find interesting is there's a tiny little book that most people do not even are even aware of is in the New Testament, and that is the tiny little letter of uh, Philemon. Philemon is written to uh, a a slave master that Paul is returning a slave to, and it's all about the, the, the slave master had been converted to Christianity, and the slave master then turned around and converted his slaves to Christianity. And Paul addresses in there the fact that, you know, he may be your slave, but as far as Christ is concerned, he is your brother. And that gives that slave master something to think about. You're enslaving your Christian brother. Now, this puts into the Christian world already something, uh, uh, you know, great to think about. Can we legitimately enslave Christian brothers and sisters? And from there... Can we slave, you know, just because they're not Christians, can we enslave anybody? And so it was, has always been Christianity that has brought up these questions uh, about humanity, about being in the image of God. And so, and they, and they all directly have their source right back to the Bible, not to some theology that someone made up later on, but they have their roots in the Bible. So to say that the Bible endorses slavery, I think, is a complete misreading of the of the whole of the text, you can sit there and pick out a few words here and there, and out of context, they see look and endorse slavery. But I don't think that you can say on the whole. It, once you have read the whole thing and un, and understand where it's going, I think you have to say that overall, it's pushing slavery out the door. And and the slavery that it even seems to condone is not exactly the same kind of slavery that. People are familiar with uh, the American version of slavery. Um, you know, the people as property. Yes, exactly. And uh, and there were uh, rules even against uh, the kidnapping of mm-hmm. other people. You know, you couldn't kidnap people to make them slaves, which is what was happening uh, with American slaves. They were being kidnapped and from their their foreign lands and brought over here. Right. That was actually a capital offense. Right. You, 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 you would open yourself up to the death penalty for doing such a thing, sure. Right. I don't want to get uh, too far ahead of you guys, but I'm interested in, John, your take on a position that Paul Copan takes in his book uh, where he talks about the idea of progressive moral revelation in the Bible. Are you familiar with that? I'm familiar with the concept, yeah. Do you think that's a legitimate explanation, too, for why the Old and New Testaments seem to be a little different? Um, I'm, I'm sort of – with me, I think the jury's out on that. I still haven't made a, a firm decision on whether I think that that is a legitimate uh, – I think, I think it's possible. I, but I, I look also at you know, God as being unchanging. He's the same God now and forever. But I can see something to the idea that mankind isn't the same now and forever. I mean, mankind right. sort of needs, needs to be brought along, you know, step by step sometimes. But yeah. um, 
Exactly. I, I think if you look at look at what uh, Jesus said to the disciples uh, shortly before he left them, you know, he he said there is so much more for me to teach you, but you are not yet ready. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not that uh, morals change, but it's that God uh, sometimes doesn't require us to a certain standard because we are not yet ready. Um, and you can one example would be the rules about divorce uh, for the Old Testament. I think is a good example of that. You know, uh, people yes. and society cannot be ready uh, to for certain rules, which they ought to in a in a perfect society they ought to hold. Right, and Jesus did say specifically on that point uh, that you know he gave you regulations for divorce because you were going to do it anyway, and so he wanted to regulate what you were going to do but he did not approve of you divorcing uh you know at all right. you know so they mean so there i so i said i think there is something to the argument the only problem that i have with it is that i have heard it being used to justify um certain if i think quite frankly immoral acts today and saying that well mm. we're, we're still progressing oh, and learning go. new things today and so we right. we can't we can't just take a first century set of morals and apply it to today we're still progressing and learning about god's unfolding revelation of new morals and right. so i now, think that's certainly sex, this sex outside of marriage now is okay right that you know right. that we should that the more people that you can love you know in a relationship the better and if you can love your fellow man or something then that's a a higher form of you know I, i've heard it i think it's mis, being misused as a concept yeah but and my response to that would be that um, we're not getting a new revelation or a new book of the Bible that's telling us, okay, now that's okay to do this. Yeah, but then the response then comes back, yes, but the principle has already been laid down. You can't lay down a principle and say that from Moses to Jesus it was operative, but then it just stopped with Jesus. I mean, isn't it isn't it unfolding as society changes and improves or, or grows and learns? Our morals also learning and growing, and this is why I can say for me it, it, it's it's I'm I'm still uh, yeah. I'm still I'm still not willing to throw my hat in that ring yet. Uh, but you know I do see I do see there's something to it, I, and I do I, I agree with you in the in the point that someone carrying a revelation from God, Jesus certainly has the authority to say now such and such. I don't know who has that authority today to be able to say something like that. So, so then let's continue this idea about uh, the strict laws, but merciful judge. So, isn't by the Old Testament having these very strict rules and and uh, you know seemingly harsh penalties um, really uh, exemplify the mercy that He offers us through Jesus Christ? And isn't that part of the lesson that He's trying to teach us? Well, I think absolutely, um, and that's why we're not supposed to be going around stoning homosexuals and stoning adulterers, and you know, uh, we end up leaving judgment more or less to to him. That does not mean that we necessarily have to approve. It's not all of a sudden that these things are okay, uh, but it's a matter of you know, for us to you know to take it upon ourselves to make a final judgment on matters is now reserved to God. And, uh, yes, exactly, the merciful judge is, I think, part of what, you know, Jesus was trying to show us with the, uh, with the, the, the woman taken in adultery. He did not say that, oh, you know, the sin that you committed was okay. He right. said, go, go and sin no more, but no one here is going to judge you, you know, and that is a stark break with the okay here's the rules and you guys can go ahead and judge you're going to be judge juries and executioner that's not the case anymore we don't have that authority uh god has now taken i think taken that back to himself because he's basically taught us that we can't do it we cannot be him you know Mm -hmm. and uh and in that uh, in that vein, though, we have to recognize that there are, again, it's like I said, the, the law breaks down into certain groupings. There are ceremonial laws, uh, for instance, the, the laws, the prohibitions against um, uh, certain eating certain foods, uh, making certain sacrifices, etc. There are moral laws, the laws uh, on prohibitions against certain 
behaviors. And then there are other things like uh, just like separation laws. Like for a lot of people don't realize, you know, you weren't allowed to make a shirt that was half cotton and half wool. That was against the law. Um, and and th- these were separation laws that were meant to teach a certain thing to the nation of Israel. Go ahead, Mark. No, I was just going to say, what do you think it was that God was trying to teach there with that? Well, that, that, that was, I think, for the nation of Israel to be specifically separated because God had said through Abraham and through this people, something very special is going to come. And so they have to remain separate. If they had just met, you know, mixed in with everybody else, how are you going to be able to, to track and see what comes out of this nation? And, of course, what comes out of that nation is the branch of David, Jesus Christ. And so, you know, we're, but now Jesus having fulfilled that, having come out of that tradition, that separation is no longer necessary. And so, you know, you can go ahead and wear your shirt, you know, half wool, half cotton, and it, God's, and God never would have punished that because the, the, the punishment for that, there was no punishment really. It was just, you know, your neighbors looked at you funny, you know, but, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. There was no, official sanctioned punishment for that and then you had like the 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 dietary laws where you were just considered ceremonially unclean for a certain amount of hours if you ate a shrimp sandwich but you weren't stoned or anything like that uh and so you're saying the rule about the half cotton and half whatever was a ceremonial rule that was meant for the people at the time that that rule was delivered to it's not something that's true forever and that we have to obey today absolutely it was not because it wasn't intended for all people all the time to be separate to you know keep to keep for instance this this idea of of racial purity and this is where you know a lot of the um uh the uh, social darwinians in the early part of the 20th century got their ideas from you know we should all be racially pure because you know god demanded separation of the races that's not what he was demanding what he was demanding was that the the people of israel remain a separate culture so that this special work that he was working through them would could be easily identified and that was the coming of the messiah and so once the Messiah comes, I'll give you a for instance. You'll say that you're part of the impossible missions force, you know, Mission Impossible. You're going to be the contact person. And uh, for, for you know, Jim Phelps to come in and get his secret recording, you know. And so you're going to hang out a sign every day that says free enchiladas, all right. And that's going to be his signal that you've got the, the, got the secret tape recording, right. Well, you hang out your sign says free enchiladas. And, you know, one day goes by, two days goes by, and you're going to be told – He's going to come in. He's going to say, I want the free enchiladas and a cup of free black coffee, okay? And that's going to be your signal that that's him, right? <laughs> so the third day he comes in, he says, and he gives you the password. I want the free enchiladas and a free cup of black coffee. And you give him his secret his secret recording, okay? Now, let me ask you. The next day, do you hang out the sign that says free enchiladas? No, uh, because no. your contact no, is already there. No, no. You're, you've, you have fulfilled it. You've, you've, you've fulfilled the purpose. The free enchilada sign has fulfilled its purpose. Okay, and it's not necessarily that the, the purpose never was free enchiladas. The pre, the purpose was something else, right? It was for, to get so that he would see which shop to come into to get his secret thing, and for you to know who he was, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the purpose never was the free enchiladas, right? That had really nothing to do with it. And that's what I'm saying that this whole thing with the free, the, the wool and the cotton and everything, it has, and even this, the dietary laws, there's nothing dirty or, or about, about lobster meat. There's nothing dirty about pork, okay? Those are ceremonial definitions. And they are there for that purpose, for that, so that those will be, you know, so that Jew, the Jewish nation could be easily identified specifically for this work of the Messiah to come through them. And this is the purpose of the vision that Peter has in the book of Acts when he has a vision of this, this, this uh, tablecloth full of all of these uh, unclean, quote-unquote, foods coming down, and God tells him to go ahead and eat. And he says, no, I can't eat that. It's all unclean. And God tells him, he says, you shall not call unclean what I have made clean. And it's a, it, and what he broadens this out to be is the fact that now Gentiles who were considered unclean now can be incorporated into the church. That the purpose of Israel 
as a separate nation has fulfilled its purpose in bringing forth the Messiah. And this was the big argument that split Christianity and Judaism. Most people think that it was over whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. And that was a big discussion. But the real breaking point with Christianity and Judaism was if the Messiah has come, then what purpose does does the nation of Israel have now? What role for the law anymore? And Paul goes into great detail on this in the book of Romans. He hammers away for three chapters that God still does have a purpose for Israel. But this purpose has been fulfilled. And so there is no need for, for everyone, the Gentiles particularly, do not have to become Jews and observe all these ceremonial laws in order to become Christians. And so this whole idea of the ceremonial law is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Of and course, so apparently, that's why, apparently for a while, Peter didn't understand that either. And he was, if I understand it correctly, he was going around demanding that new Christians act like Jews until Paul put them straight and said, no, you can't do that. That's not the way it works anymore. Right. And Paul was the one that gave him that idea. And then he has this vision where God basically re- reinforces it and tells him, you know, you, you shall not call unclean what I have made clean. In other words, that, you know, Gentiles are eligible to come directly into the church. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's God's mandate, not just Paul's. And so that is part of that, that whole issue. So really, the the baseline that we're talking about here is that the ceremonial laws that God gave were only temporary, but the moral laws are permanent. Exactly. But the, uh, but the judgment, the execution of those laws, you know, the, the, the stoning and all that, is also not necessarily reserved to us. We obviously, I think, have to keep murderers and things from protecting society as much as we can. But, uh, you know... The, the 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 final judgment against people i don't I, I think has also been reserved back to god but yes the moral law is still very much intact all right well if you're just joining us you are listening to evidence for faith a ministry of rashu christi i'm keith kendricks and i'm kirk hastings and i'm john conforti i'm getting used to saying that uh, yeah there you go yeah it's your name so it works out pretty well <laughs> so um so we are talking about, is God a moral monster? And I like this turn that we've taken now to show that the law is actually teaching the world, human beings, something. And it seems to be teaching us about Jesus Christ. Let's develop that a little further. What what exactly are we saying here? Uh, I think all, it, it teaches us the, the character and nature of Jesus Christ. But the, also this issue about, you know, do we have two gods? Is, you know, the Old Testament God and then the New... I think you have to see them all as one God. You know, the, the in the Old Testament, God is teaching us the, you know, the consequences of being out there bare naked with our sin. And now you need to be redeemed and covered. Your sin needs to be covered. And that is covered with Jesus Christ. And so that is the institution of grace for our benefit. And, you know, so, you know, God is, is, you know, it's, it's God's grace. Jesus is God's grace upon us. And also, really, if you really read the Old Testament, God's compassion and mercy is mentioned there probably just as much, if not more, than in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, uh, Jesus talks more about hell than he talks about heaven. So really, to say that the God of the Old Testament is an angry old guy and, you know, Jesus in the New Testament is a nice, meek lamb, just really, that dichotomy isn't true. Yes, it's a false dichotomy. Uh, right. You can see God's grace going all the way back into Genesis, early Genesis, um, when and most people don't see it this way, but I would like to, you know, point this out. When Cain murders Abel, uh, Cain is is sentenced to be a wanderer in the world, and he complains to God. He says, you know, everybody's going to know I'm a murderer, and they're all going to be seeking after my life. You know, what? What? I cannot bear this burden. And God says, I will place a mark upon you that will tell people that you are Cain and no one is to touch you, okay? And most people look at this like, you know, he's branding him or something, like branding him a murderer. That's not really true. If you look at it from, he is giving him a mark of grace. He is telling him, telling the rest of the world, look, 
I've given Cain, you know, I've shown Cain mercy. He deserves death. But if I'm not going to execute him, then no one else has the right to execute him. And so he places that, that mark is a mark of grace, of God's grace. So we're talking about, you know, the first chapters of Genesis, God's grace. And even earlier, you can say, you know, he had the right to wipe out Adam and Eve the moment they disobeyed. But certainly with the, with Cain and Abel, here we have an outright murderer, a confessed murderer. And God shows grace and mercy to him and puts a mark of grace upon him. So I think that that, you know, like, like you said, to say that he's all, you know, mean and rotten in the, in the Old Testament is certainly not the case. But the, he put the mark on Cain not to embarrass him or anything. He put it there actually to protect him, almost like if he had given him a bulletproof vest. He's exactly. saying, here, yes, I'm going to give this to you to protect you from the people that might want to kill you. <laughs> Right, exactly. That, you know, it's, 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 it's to make sure that no one uh, it will tell other people who you are, and that they are not to touch you. That because, like I said, that if if I didn't execute you as God, if I didn't you know execute the death penalty on you, then no one else has the right to. And to me, I mean that that is a mark of of God's grace. All right, let's uh, let's turn our attention now to this uh, question about. Uh, the Canaanites and, you know, well, if your God is such a loving God in the Old Testament, then how come he wanted to slaughter all those Canaanites and what's he got against Canaanites anyway? And that's really genocide, uh, which is even worse than murder because uh, you're trying to wipe out everybody of a certain race. Uh, so so what the, what about that, you Christians? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of explanations uh, for um, – the, the this 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 idea and you know some people will talk about um that for instance some of what might happen be happening is um that what was going on in in, in the old testament might have been some funny business with the with you know genetic manipulations and things of that sort i've heard all kinds of of answers to this question Let's, I think, let's stick with the answers that the average kind of Christian would be willing to tell an atheist sitting next to him on a plane, plane trip right. to Los Angeles. Right. Well, what I was I was just about to say is that I think what you have to stick with are the ones that uh, you know that are not as esoteric. You know, ones that just sort of make mainstream sense out of what was going on here. Well, there's a really simple one probably that most people probably wouldn't want to hear. And that's if if God gave everybody life to begin with, then He has the right to take it any time He wants. <laughs> well, that's yes, true. Yes, that's very true, uh, and that makes a lot of sense. So, uh, you know, even if God says to the nation of Israel, "I want you to kill all the adults and the children," um, it is God who gave life to those children. So it is His to take back if He. Uh, so desires. I mean, every every year, every day, every hour that we get is a gift of life from God. Right. He doesn't owe us any any life beyond you know right now. <laughs> That's right. It's yeah. just as if he gave uh, you know me a million dollars and and Kirk he gives you ten million. I mean, do I have a right to complain then and say, hey, that's not fair? How come you gave me only a million? Right, because it's his money. <laughs> but but at the same time, I think so. A lot of particularly non-believers will say that sounds awful self-serving. True as true as it may be, it sounds a little self-serving. So I think you need to go a little bit further than than, than simply saying that. Um, I think what what also needs to be recognized is that among the Canaanites, you have this group of people, the Israelites, where God's presence had been made known, and it was well known in the region through the the exodus from Egypt and the miracles that were going on uh, surrounding this people. And for them to rebel against, you know, the, the, what, the, what was going on with these people, having God having been made, having made his presence known among them, was also, you know, as as God makes His presence known more among a group of people, responsibility the responsibility level goes up. You know, so that these people, these the Canaanites, there, they had a responsibility to acknowledge that they were seeing the work. Just as, you know, what right did He have to kill the firstborn in Egypt? 
Well, because he had made himself known so well among the people of Egypt that, you know, and yet they would not let the children of Israel go. So, you know, how much does, you know, God owe people who are in absolute rebellion against him and against his presence? So there's that factor going on. But then you get, okay, what about the children? If I, as an individual human being, go out and I murder a child, I do not have the ability to then give that child life elsewhere or, you know, any kind of life. I, I can't, bes- you know, bestow life back onto that child. The author of life, God, does. So if he ordains that these children will die, but he has the, the ability to bring them back into life in his presence, and as Christians we do believe that children under the age, of, you know, certain ages who do not have the ability to make, you know, the, 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 the ability to make decisions. Under the age of accountability. Right, under the age of accountability, uh, are brought into his presence as innocents, uh, then he has the right to do that because he is the author of life. Right. And so he has the right to be able to say, you can take this life and I will give them life hereafter. You know, so there's a whole lot of more than just saying, you know, he's God and he can do that. There's a whole lot more involved in that answer than simply saying, you know, he's God and he has the right to do it. He is the author of life. He is the author of all morality and he is made his presence known and as much as he makes his presence known the responsibility of mankind to react to that presence is warranted you know among those people and so you know as with Egypt and with the Canaanites you know their inability to res- their or their unwillingness to respond to his presence among the people of Israel is probably a, a huge factor in the fact in, in figuring as to why the, those mandates were given isn't another also part of that um, God was putting a limit on the spread of these people's sin? Yeah, I think that's a good another good uh, explanation. In fact, that's what he basically says. You know, he says, "I don't want these people contaminating you in any way." Yeah, it says uh, so stuff like they were worshiping idols and practicing child sacrifice themselves, and you know, sexual immorality and this, that, and the other thing. And and he, that's he, part of the failure to respond to to his presence among them. You know, that they're not they're not worshiping the true God, and I don't want them to infect you. Exactly. I mean, it's 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 part of that same thought. Yes, exactly. Now, there's another aspect to this that has been brought out by some uh, theologians, one from New Zealand, and oh my goodness, I'm going to forget his name. Well, regardless, uh, there is a lot that's been known about the culture of the time, and there was a essentially a war rhetoric uh, that was used during that time uh, where leaders would say, you know, I wiped out uh, all these people. I I, nef- I left not a living soul, and yet we know that that historically that that isn't true. Um, so think about it like this: if your coach tells you on the football team to go and kill them, uh, <laughs> do you think that he actually means you know go and kill them? Well, no, of course he doesn't mean that. He is using the rhetoric of the sport. And so basically this is war rhetoric that God is using the same kind of language that was then used all the time and they would culturally have understood this to mean go out and win. And in fact, when we see the actual Old Testament descriptions of what actually happened, you don't see that the Israelites went out and killed every animal, every human being, everything that that breathed. You actually see them driving the Canaanites out of the land. Yeah, can you, you see brought, the you... Canaanites being pushed away and forced to leave the area? but not that they were being slaughtered. You've brought this up in a previous program, Keith, where you were talking about this, and you mentioned that even after it said, God said in the Old Testament, wipe all these people out, meaning the Canaanites, you said, well, there are actually references later in the Old Testament to the Canaanites, so obviously they weren't all wiped out. Right, and and not only that, but, you know, even the descriptions of different battles and different, uh, you know, Put, it's all about pushing the Canaanites out of the land. It, it's not about uh, trying to destroy every breathing thing. 
Right. And ancient warfare, let's face it, wasn't pretty. You didn't really have much of a capacity to, for instance, go into a town and hold it. You or had take to wipe, prisoners. Right. You had to wipe everybody out because your army was small and you had to move on. So you couldn't leave a fortified position in your rear, so you had to do something that would, you know, incapacitate their ability to ever, you know, come back against you. And usually that meant wiping out all the male members of that society. And that was just that was ancient warfare the way that it was. I mean, there there simply was no way around that. So, John, uh, once you wrap this, uh, we've got about two minutes left. So, once you wrap up this package for our listeners and put a bow on it, and what's the main message that uh, people should get from this accusation that God uh, is a an evil monster? Um, I think that, as with anything concerning the Bible, you need to think a lot deeper about it than simply a few thrown off the cuff. cuff quotations you know pulled from some verses somewhere uh it's a lot it's a lot deeper issue than that and it all has to do with jesus christ if you are confused or unable to discern what a particular uh uh, image might be then put jesus christ right in the middle of it and see what that yields you in terms of understanding that particular facet of the old testament law and I think that you'll, you know, get a lot out of pursuing it and learn more about it rather than, you know, just simply, you know, brushing it off and saying with, with, with a platitude, actually learn what you're talking about. And learn about the historical context in which a lot of these things are said, which can really alter what it seems to say. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Historical. Well, context is everything. So, gentlemen, I think that was a great show. So uh, I will be away the next few shows. So you two guys will have to carry on without me. So not too much uh, fun and parties while I'm gone. (laughs) So I will probably be listening. This is broadcast worldwide. So I will be listening and uh, wishing you best, the best. Um, So thank you, gentlemen, for having a great show today. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rosho Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.